Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. All right, good morning again, WCC. It's wonderful to be with you. If my voice is a little strained, forgive me. I was uh, yelling at the Braves last night, so uh, they were wearing me out. I stayed up till like 1 o'clock, I think, watching all the stuff, so it was awesome. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we are continuing a series going through the book of Hebrews. And I keep saying this, I'm trying to remind us that the theme of Hebrews is this, that real faith is a persevering faith. And the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to persevere in our faith. In fact, he's saying that you must continue in your faith or you actually never had real saving faith. In fact, I was thinking about it. I don't know if you, if you did stay up watching the Braves. Dansby Swanson had an interview. And uh, he is a committed Christian. And one of the things he does, he, has a, he keeps a prayer journal every night. And one of the things he writes in his journal is persistent faith. He wants to be persistent in his faith because he understands that that's how you walk the walk. That's how you really live for Christ. So the author of Hebrews starts out his argument by saying that real faith is, is persevering faith. And he starts out by saying that you must hold fast to Jesus because Jesus is better than anything else. And so he compares Jesus to the prophets. He compares Jesus to the angels, which we'll see today. And then he compares Jesus to Moses and the Old Testament priests. And the author keeps on saying that, G the, that Jesus is superior. And he's making this argument to these first century Christians, these Jewish Christians, because in first century Judaism, they did not believe generally that Jesus was necessary. They thought we've got Moses We've got the temple, we've got the sacrificial system, why do we need Jesus? So the author of Hebrews is warning these Jewish believers that if you reject Jesus, you're really rejecting the true God because Jesus is God. Now something that's very interesting that I found recently, you may have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, I think, in 1947. One of the things the Dead Sea Scrolls showed us was that there was a group of Jewish people living in the first century who were known as the Essenes. And they were living in a community called Qumran. And it appears that the Essenes had beliefs that were very similar to the Jewish believers who were the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews. Very similar, just kind of quirks about their beliefs. For example, they had a very, the Essenes, you can find this in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they had a very high view of angels. And we'll see that in, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, they even thought, the Essenes thought that the, that the angels were going to be more important than the Messiah when it came to ushering in God's kingdom. They also thought that, there, that a person named Melchizedek, and you can read about him in the book of Genesis, they thought, the Essenes and the, the recipients of this letter, thought that a Melchizedek-type figure would be like the Messiah, would bring in God's kingdom. So, as I said, these were the views of these Essene Jews. You can find the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the book of Hebrews. So, what it looks like is that the author of Hebrews is addressing some Jewish Christians who had come out of some Essene teachings and now were being tempted to go back to that, to, tempted to go back to that Judaism. And again, the author has warned them, you better not because if you turn away from Christ, you're turning away from the true and living God. 
All right, let's read Hebrews. We're going to read Hebrews 1, 1 to 6. We've already covered the first, most of the first few verses, but let's just kind of a recap. Let's look at Hebrews 1, 1 to 6. And the author says this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's what we covered last week. He continues on and says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. That's all we're going to cover today. I wanted to cover the whole chapter, but there was just so much good stuff. I didn't want to keep you here forever. So we're going to end in in verse 6 today. Um, Before we start going into the chapter, something I found fascinating is this. In, in first century Israel, numerology was very important. So numbers were very important. And the number seven, you may know this, the number seven is very important. The number seven is considered God's number, like completion, perfection, and God. God made the universe in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. So the number seven is a very significant number. Well, in the book of Hebrews, what you will find is, in the first few verses, the author gives us seven descriptions of the sun, okay? Before he starts talking about angels, he gives us seven descriptions. He says, beginning in verse two, he says, whom he appointed the heir of all things, that's number one, through whom also he created the world, that's two. Number three, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Number four, he's the exact imprint of his nature. Number five, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Number six, we'll look at today, after making purification for sins, And then number seven, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. So the author gives these six descriptions of Jesus before he starts comparing him to angels. Okay? So, I mean, he gives seven descriptions of Jesus before he starts comparing him to to angels. Then, when the author has given us these quotations, he starts giving us all these quotations from the Old Testament. You know how many quotations he gives? He gives seven. So he gives seven descriptions of Jesus and seven quotations from the Old Testament. That's not an accident, okay? The, the Jews were very particular in how they did things, and this is what the author is showing us is a number of things. Jesus is God, and he's completed the work. That's what the number seven represents. So I thought that that was fascinating. All right, let's walk through Hebrews 1, verses 3 to 6. Um, just as a reminder, as we go through these verses, don't sit there passively thinking that this stuff has no relevance to you. Really, my prayer is that we would be people who take the truth of God's word and want to apply it to our lives and make it significant for us. This is how you walk in faith, knowing who your God is, knowing who your Savior is. And that's my challenge for us, to remind us about who our Lord Jesus is. All right, Hebrews 1 Verse 3, at the end of the verse, it says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this verse says that Jesus made purification for sins. Here, Jesus is pictured as a priest. 
as the high priest. That's what the language there means when it says making purification for sins. That's what the priest did. So in the Old Testament, the priest offered an animal as a sacrifice in order to symbolically satisfy the judgment of God. when, When the priest would take an animal and they would kill the animal on the altar, it was a picture of God's judgment coming on the animal and killing the animal instead of coming on the priest and coming on the people of God. So that's the picture of making purification for sins. That's this a picture of forgiveness of sins through the sacrificial system of the priest. The thing about Jesus is Jesus did not offer an animal as a sacrifice. What was the sacrifice that Jesus offered? Himself, his own life. So Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. He laid down his own life and he did that when he went to the cross. And when Jesus did that, he made purification for sins. Also, this is important. In the Old Testament, the priest first had to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was a sinner. Jesus doesn't do that because Jesus is the sinless one. Jesus doesn't have to make atonement for himself or ask for forgiveness for himself because Jesus is the sinless one. He is the lamb without blemish. So also when when Jesus makes his sacrifice, he is the true high priest. He offered himself as a sacrifice. And when he did that, he took care of all the sins of his people for all time. He's taken care of our sins, past, present, future. Even for Christians who have not yet been born, he's already died for their sins. Jesus has died and taken care of it all. That's how he has made purification for sins. And so just the joy of resting in the knowledge that all of our sins have been forgiven in Christ. Just to rest in that. It's all gone. The shame, the judgment, the, the everything, condemnation is all gone because of Jesus' work as both the priest and as offering himself as a sacrifice. When it says here, it says, after making purification for sins, or your translation may say, had made, had made purification for sins. This is an interesting bit of history. Roman Catholic theology is often based on the Latin translation of the Bible, so the Latin Vulgate. And, and it's not based on the original Greek. Much of Catholic theology is this way. Well, the Latin language does not have, and I'm not a grammar nerd, I've just found this out, but the Latin language does not have what is called the perfect active participle. Like with the past tense, like an active thing, but with the past. So the Latin translation doesn't say after making purification for sins. The Latin translation in the past tense, the Latin translation says making purification for sins, as in like right now. And so this has resulted in the Catholic false teaching that Jesus still makes purification for sins. That he is, that he's making, that what they say is that he makes purifications during the mass, Like he needs to be crucified over and over again during the Mass. Interesting, it's just based on a bad translation of this text is one of those. So that's not what the the author of Hebrews is saying. Jesus has already made purification for sins. It's done. So the, the Roman Catholic view, the Roman Catholic theology is just based on a bad translation. All right, notice this. In the very first verse of Hebrews 1, it says, that, it says that God spoke through the prophets, and now he's th- spoken through his son. What we see is that Jesus is the prophet. He's the ultimate prophet. The prophet speaks the word of God. Jesus is the great prophet, all right? And now we see that Jesus has made purification for sins. He is the priest. So Jesus is the prophet. He is the priest. Also, look at verse 3. 
It says, after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He, the majesty on high was a little, Jewish people would oftentimes not say the name of God. They would say things like majesty to represent God. So this is a picture of Jesus sitting down on the throne at the right hand of God. Who sits down on a throne? A king. You see what the author of Hebrews is doing very quickly? He is showing that Jesus is the prophet, he is the priest, and he is the king. And those were the three big offices in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. And all of those things in the Old Testament were pointing forward to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. It's really awesome. So it says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. By sitting down, Jesus showed that his work as the high priest was done. It was finished. Also, Jesus sitting down is significant because in the Old Testament, the priest never sat down. In the temple, there was no chair. There was no place to sit. The priest's job was to get in there, perform his tasks, and then get out of there. You didn't mess around when you come into the unveiled holiness of God. So you don't sit down in the presence of the king. Also, in ancient times, you didn't sit down in the presence of a king. You don't go into the royal court when the king is on his throne and, and sit down in a lazy boy and just, <laughs> and just cruise, you know. You don't do that. But it says that Jesus sat down on the throne at the right hand of God. Why? Because Jesus is king. He is seated on his throne he is exalted. He is the king. And when it says Jesus sat down, this is symbolic language. It doesn't mean Jesus is literally sitting down all the time. Uh, there are places, for example, in the book of Acts, when Stephen is stoned, he looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand, about to welcome him. Okay, so, but it's symbolic language, again, showing that Jesus is on the throne. He is the king. Sitting down at the right hand of God shows that Jesus is in the most important place of authority. Even today, if we say so-and-so is the governor's right-hand man or some executive's right-hand man, we mean that that person is in a position of authority. So the right hand of God the Father, again, the majesty on high, the right hand of God the Father, he has the highest place of honor. Jesus is, has the highest place of authority and honor. We see this in the Apostles' Creed, which we're reciting this month. I don't know if you catch that. But one of the things we say is that Jesus ascended into heaven and sitteth, we use the old King James language, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So the, the Apostles' Creed is one of the oldest confessions of the church, and even then they understood the importance of Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father. So it shows that Jesus rules and reigns as the king of the universe. We talked about this last week. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is not waiting to become king. He has all authority right now. He is the king right now, and he is ruling and reigning. He's finished his work of atonement. His sacrifice is finished, and now he is seated, ruling the universe with authority. Verse 4 says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So at this point, the author of Hebrews starts showing that Jesus is greater than the angels. And that's what he's going to talk about for the rest of chapter 1. As I said, these first century Jewish believers had a high view of angels. And I've thought about it. We should have a higher view 
of angels. I think in our, in our thinking, in our secular age, we don't think much about angels, and we think of them, we often have very false ways of thinking about angels. Sometimes we think of angels as little babies, right, as little snow angels, right, little infants with little wings. In fact, I got a, this right here is my wife's, okay, this is a little snow baby with little wings, this little baby, little cute little face, <laughs> you can put it in your pocket, it's just a cute, got little wings on the back, you know, he, he's got the outfit, you remember Christmas story, Ralphie's little brother has dressed up and he can't lower his arms, that's the outfit this little snow baby has on, so this is sometimes how we think of angels, as little, just cute little things. Or uh, speaking of Christmas movies, It's a Wonderful Life. You remember, every time a bell rings, the angel gets his wings. <laughs> That's right. That a boy, Clarence. You remember all that? So, so I think it's in the Bible, right? Every time a bell rings, the angel gets his wings. I think it's second hesitations or something. Um, So that's what we think of oftentimes when we think of angels, which is weird, really, because when the Bible talks about angels, they're bold and intimidating and often terrifying, awe-inspiring creatures. When people encounter angels, they don't think they're cute and cuddly. They fall down and are terrified. They're, They're scary, and many times they want to worship them. Angels are these awesome, amazing beings. I don't know what they look like. Maybe they're 8, 10 feet tall and full of light. Whatever they are, they're very intimidating and terrifying when people are around them. And and I think giving some thought to angels in our secular age is helpful. Because here's the truth, and oftentimes, again, we don't think about this a lot. There is a spiritual world around us that we don't see. And often we don't think about. There is an unseen world around us with spiritual creatures, with powerful angels and demons. And they're real. Angels and demons are real. Demons are evil spirits who have fallen. These demons have no possibility of salvation. But angels, on the other hand, have never sinned. They don't have a sin nature. And they're servants of God. They're perfectly obedient to the Lord. And here in Hebrews 1, at the end of Hebrews 1, in verse 14, it says that angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve us, God's people. So they serve us. They protect us. We don't need to speculate a lot, but but it's helpful to know that they serve God's people. They protect us. That that God has commanded them to do that, and they perfectly obey God. In other places, it talks about there are myriads of myriads or millions of millions of angels. I would not be surprised, and I say this in all seriousness, I would not be surprised if there are angels in this room right now every week. Considering there are millions, maybe billions of angels, it would not surprise me if we have angels in this room every week. wouldn't surprise me at all. Now, again, we don't need to speculate on it. The Bible doesn't want us to speculate, but what it, I do think it's helpful to remember that there is an unseen world around us that our secular age does not want us to think about, but it's, it's a real thing. So these angels are these magnificent, awe-inspiring, terrifying creatures. This is, and again, people, a lot of times when they encountered angels, they want to worship them. This is Revelation 22, verse 8, the very end of the Bible. Apostle John is describing being in the presence of an angel, and John says this, and I wouldn't expect John to do this, but you can tell what angels are like. John says this, I fell down at the feet of the angel. He fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. But the angel said, you must not do that. 
He says, you must not worship me. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers. He says, worship God. The angel says, don't worship me, worship God. So the angels are these awesome things, and people wanted to worship them. And they would say, no, worship God. Now, what's interesting, too, just as an aside, people would worship Jesus. Thomas called him my Lord and my God. People would fall down and worship Jesus. Jesus never said, don't worship me, worship God. He, never t- he, he receives the worship. It's appropriate for Jesus to receive the worship because he is divine. But angels are just creatures. Also, angels minister before the Lord. There is a group of angels who gather around the throne of God to worship him. This is Isaiah 6, very famous chapter. I'd encourage you, if you're not familiar with Isaiah 6, to read it. This is Isaiah 6. It says, in the year, Isaiah's writing, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, now try to get this picture in your mind, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, seraphs, these, these angels, said each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one seraph, one angel called to another as they're flying around the throne of God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, woe is me. (laughs) Isaiah said, woe is me. He said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among the people of unclean lips. He said, I'm done. I'm ruined when he saw all this. So these types, so, so what I'm saying is angels are amazing. They're awesome. They're worshiping around the throne of God. These angels are as close, think about this, they're as close as you can get to the throne of God. And that's why Jewish believers had such a high and exalted view of angels because you can't get any closer than what these angels are doing. But what the author of Hebrews is saying, as close as the angels are to the throne of God, there's one who's even closer. He's seated on the throne, and that's the Lord Jesus. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And it says in verse 4 here, Jesus is superior to angels. And when it says that, it says the name he has inherited is more excellent than the angels. The name he has inherited. The name he has inherited, the name is talking about, is the title Son of God. Jesus is the one and only begotten Son of God. He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And now we come to verse 5. And in verse 5, these are, as I said, there are seven quotations from the Old Testament in Hebrews 1. And this is the first two of those seven quotes. And verse 5 contains quotations from Psalm 2, Psalm 2, 7, and 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. And it says, to which of the angels, so the author of Hebrews is saying, to which of the angels did God ever say, and then he quotes this passage from Psalm 2, 7. He says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Some translations say, today I've become your father. And then it continues and says, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So the author is showing that Jesus is more superior to the angels. Angels are servants, but Jesus is God the son. And so the author asks this rhetorical question. He's asking, did God ever say this to an angel that today I've begotten you or I've become your father or, or you shall be my son? Did God ever say that? To, to an angel. No, God has only said that about his only begotten son. He only said it about Jesus, who's given the title, the son of God. 
Again, angels are just creatures. Jesus is in his nature divine. He's God. Now, in verse 5, you may wonder about this. We see the limitations of language because in, my, in the ESV it says begotten or I've become your father. And we may think, when we think about language, about a father, old language, but a father begetting a son or I have become your father, we may think about this and we may think, okay, does that mean that there was a time when the son did not exist? It says that today I've now begotten you. Does that mean there was a time when Jesus, the Son of God, did not exist. No, the idea of the Son being begotten, this begotten language, is simply showing the relationship between the Father and the Son. And really, any time we talk about the Trinity or the relationships between God the Father and God the Son, we have these limitations of language. In fact, when you talk about the Trinity, if you talk too much, you're going to end up speaking heresy if you try to get too creative with it. Because you want to stick to what the, the, the church has said because it is, the church has taken great care to try to be very precise in its language talking about the Trinity. So when it talks about Jesus being begotten, what the old creeds of the church have said is that Jesus is eternally begotten. So he's begotten, but he's begotten is just showing the relationship between the Father and the Son. Or the Athanasian Creed from the 300 says this, that the Son... Jesus, the Son, is not made nor created, but begotten. Okay? So Jesus is, you may just want to remember this, Jesus is begotten, not made. He's begotten, not created. He has existed throughout all eternity. He is God. He is divine. There never was a time, this is hard for our brains to think about, but there never was a time when the Son of God did not exist. You go back as far and back in history as you can to where creation started. The triune God is there. Enjoying perfect fellowship within the Trinity. Jesus has always existed. He is the Son of God. Verse 6 is the third quotation from the Old Testament. It says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, this is a quote from the Septuagint. The Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Bible that the Jews had in the first century when the New Testament was written. And this is a quotation from Deuteronomy 32 from the Septuagint. I've been thinking and studying and hearing a lot of stuff about the Septuagint. There's a lot of technical and interesting things about it. I'm not going to get into them, frankly, because they just lead, kind of lead you down a, a rabbit hole. If you're interested, I'd encourage you to study it and you come and talk to me about it. I like talking about it, but I'm not going to get into it in the sermon because it's just very, uh, you get into some minutia that I don't think is very helpful right now. But a couple of things about this quotation, when it says God brings the firstborn into the world, again, it doesn't mean that the Son of God was brought into existence. Actually, right here when it says brings the firstborn into the world, the the Greek word for world means the inhabited world or civilization. So when it's saying that the father brings his son or sends his son Jesus into civilization, into the inhabited world. In other words, when Jesus became a man, when Jesus was born. And it says when God brings the firstborn into the world, he said, let all God's angels worship him. And when Jesus was born, did the angels worship him? Yes, they did. If you know the Christmas story, in the fields of Bethlehem, the shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night, you know the words. And, uh, and suddenly in the, in the sky at night, this like myriad huge choir of angels, group of angels, 
start singing glory to God in the highest. They praise God. They're worshiping Jesus even at the time when he was born. So when Jesus was brought into the inhabited world, all God's angels worshiped him. Something else it says when God brings the firstborn into the world. Firstborn. Jesus is called the firstborn son. And that's a title. And again, this is one of those things that, that it was easier for first century Jewish people to understand than us. It doesn't mean that there are lots of kids and Jesus is first in the birth order. That's not what that means. The title firstborn is a title and it's a figure of speech. As I said, Jewish people in the first century understood this. But it has almost nothing actually to do with birth. One who is the firstborn was the one who had the title of authority in the family. The firstborn had the right to inherit. The firstborn had the right to speak for the family, to sign contracts. The firstborn had the rights of kind of the the patriarch ruling. He he was going to take over the ruling and authority in the family, the right to make decisions, all that. That's what the term means. So when it says that God brings the firstborn into the inhabited world, it's saying Jesus is the one with authority. He is the one who rules. And again, it says, let all God's angels worship him. The author of Hebrews is again showing that Jesus is superior to angels because angels are worshiping Jesus. Angels are still creatures, but even angels, these powerful, amazing creatures, bow down and worship Jesus because he's God the Son. So Jesus is superior to angels. In fact, Jesus is the creator. He created these angels. He created the angels, and now they worship him. So again, the author of Hebrews is saying, don't turn back to the religion that exalts angels over Jesus. Because if you do that, you're turning to a false religion and you're turning away from the true and living God. All right, I'm going to stop there with this explanation and we're going to pick up verse 7 next time. But I did want to close with this. The author of Hebrews, again, is saying that angels are awesome. We should thank God for angels. But Jesus is way superior to angels. And I just want to stress to us that you can't think too highly of Jesus. Our temptation is always to think too lowly of Jesus. You can't overshoot Jesus. There is simply no way to exalt him in your mind and heart too high. You just can't do it. Jesus is the king who's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's the great high priest who has made purification for sins for his people. He's the prophet who speaks the truth. When the book of Hebrews was written, there were lots of people who wanted to diminish Jesus, and these Jewish believers were hearing that. There were lots of people who wanted to minimize Jesus. And you know what? The same thing happens today. People want to diminish Jesus. They want to minimize him. They want to make him look tame. They want to make Jesus look safe and weak. It happens today, even in churches. Even people in churches want to minimize Jesus. And and the sad part is, even in our own lives, we have a tendency to diminish Jesus rather than exalt him to his place of honor. And for us, this is the challenge for us. Many of us say we believe that Jesus is the exalted Lord who's worshiped by angels. We say that, but oftentimes we don't live like it. And I said this last week, for many of us, for many of us, If we really believe that Jesus is the exalted one and who loves us and is uh, seated on the throne and controlling all things, we wouldn't have a lot of the doubts and worries and fears that we have. Many of us, we quit at the first sign of trouble. We give up. We just quit. 
We don't fight the good fight of faith. We don't put on the armor of God. For many of us, we don't live confidently. I was thinking about this this week. There is a sense in which Christians, you ever heard the term swagger? Like he has a little swagger to him. There's a sense in which Christians should live lives with a little swagger. And I don't mean confidence in ourselves. I mean confidence in our king who controls. We should have a little swagger in the way we live. Again, not because of us. It's not because of us at all. But it's because we have King Jesus who rules and reigns. We should be very confident people. Because he controls the future. He controls everything. Many of us don't live like that. Many of us, we complain and we play the victim. And when we do that, and here's the warning, when we do that, by our actions, and I know we don't mean to, but by our actions, we're showing that, we're, that, that Jesus is weak. By our actions, we're saying that he's not the sovereign king. By our actions, we're saying he's not seated at the right hand of the Father. And we've got to stop thinking like that. Look, if, if angels worship Jesus and bow down to him right now, and they are right now, That means in your life, we need to be constantly exalting him, confidently trusting his rule, and showing in real ways that we believe he's the sovereign king of the universe. I've thought about this too. We like to be in control. You know that? We like to be in control. We're not in control, but Jesus is in control. King Jesus is in control, and that is awesome. Listen, I would just say this. Let go of the need to be in control. Rest in the fact that Jesus is on the throne, worshiped by angels. Rest in his sovereignty. Rest in his power. Rest in his strength. Rest in the fact that he is the creator and sustainer of all things. And here's the irony. It's a beautiful irony. When you rest in the Lord's power, it doesn't mean you're passive doing nothing. Now, when you rest in his power, when you rest in the power of the one who's worshiped by angels, then you're able to confidently and actively fight the good fight of faith. Fighting against sin, fighting against anger and lust and jealousy, producing the fruit of love, producing the fruit of joy. When you rest in the power of King Jesus, and you're still active, right? Still working, but rest in the fact that he's in control. When you do that, you can confidently live your life because he's the one seated on the throne. And it doesn't matter who you are, you need a higher view of Jesus Christ. I need a higher view of Jesus Christ. And this really is the only way that we can live by faith, by knowing who our Lord is. You need an exalted view of Jesus. You need to really believe that Jesus has it under control. You need to believe that deep down in your soul. And again, I can tell you this, when you make Jesus central in your life, I was telling Gideon and Miriam this, my prayer is for them and for all of us, that that Jesus would be central through our life, just through our day. We would just say, Lord Jesus, I need you right now. I just need you. Or, or, Father, so-and-so is hurting. Could, I just want to pray for them right now. Just when you're going throughout your day. Or, Lord, it's a beautiful fall day. Thank you for this day. Thank you for my church. Thank you for my family. You're just having this conversation where he is central to your life. When you're in constant communication with the Lord, when he is the high and exalted one who reigns, when you find your thoughts going to Jesus, when you find your thoughts going to the price he paid on the cross, in his resurrection, in his ascension, seated at the right, hap- the right hand of the Father, worshiped by angels. When you find that happening, you'll find this. You have more contentment. You have more confidence. You won't give up as much. You'll have more power to keep on keeping on. You'll have more joy. But what I found is you don't need to really pursue joy, right? You don't need to pursue contentment and strength. Don't pursue those things. 
Pursue Jesus Christ. Pursue him and watch those things happen. That's what happens. And in your heart, if you exalt Christ, you're never going to regret that. You're never going to regret pursuing Jesus Christ and seeking to have an exalted view of him. So that's my prayer is make your life one that is dominated by our glorious King Jesus. And I'm done here. That's what the author of Hebrews wants for you. He wants you to make Jesus exalted in your heart and in your mind. That's what the author of Hebrews is. That's what I want for you. And most importantly, that's what God wants for you. Meditate on him. Allow Jesus to dominate your thinking. And then rest. Rest in his power and strength. Amen. Let's let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we love you. We do praise you for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you are the high and exalted one. Thank you that you are the one who is worshipped by angels. You rule on the throne. Oh God, Jesus, we praise you that you are the son. We praise you that you love us, your people. I pray that we would remind ourselves that not only that you are sovereign in control, but you love your people. You laid down your life for us. You lay down your life for us and you love us. You are our God and our King. So I pray that you would be exalted in our minds and in our hearts. Just be central to us, Lord. Let us be people who who want to glorify you and live for you. And then allow us to just confidently walk in that and rest in that. Rejoice in that. And live for you and be a blessing to others. And then just leave the results to you. You're good, Lord. Jesus, we love you and praise you. We're so thankful for your goodness toward us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.